Good morning, everybody. It is such a pleasure today to welcome one of our own and my colleague, Margot Krasnoff, our speaker of Grand Rounds today. You know, it is customary at these uh, presentations to introduce the speaker by sort of giving you a lengthy review of their accomplishments and their biography. But I'm going to buck the trend and not do that for several reasons. One, I have the sneaky suspicion that nobody really listens or remembers. Um, and two, because Margo is sort of a Dartmouth lifer. Everybody knows her here very well, or should, or will know her after this presentation. And number three, because Margot, in her usual innovative way, is actually going to basically tell her story in the introduction of her talk. And who can tell Margot's story better than she can? So instead, I'm going to just say a few personal words about Margot. Margot was a respected internist when I came here in 91 as an ID fellow. Um, but she was gone when I, came, I left. And then when I came back in 97, she was gone. And there was really a lot of sadness. And people talked about Margot still, despite the fact that she was gone. Well, to our great fortune in 2001, she saw the light and returned to the Upper Valley. <laughs> and our section has really never been the same. Margot is that quintessential, no-nonsense internist and geriatrician. You know, she, she just doesn't perseverate over things. She has, sees a problem, she tries to fix a problem and move on. There's none of this, you know, let's talk about it one more time. And patients, students, her colleagues, we love her because of this. So this, her story today really is along the same lines. And it's an inspiring story to everyone in the audience today, students, residents and faculty alike, no matter what our stage in our profession. It's a story about somebody who had a dream and who followed her lodestar into sort of making this dream a reality. In addition, not only she followed her own and, and sort of got personal satisfaction, she's written a roadmap for the rest of us who want to do this with her. I think just amazing. Most of us know that um, in 2013, Dartmouth Press um, put out a book that was edited by Margot, and she's going to talk about this today. The book is called A Guide for Global Health Workers, Building Partnerships in the Americas. But how many can say that their book got a glowing review from none other than Paul Farmer, Dr. Paul Farmer at MGH? And I'm going to close this introduction by reading his um, uh, review of Margot's book. He says, these case studies are opened with an incisive overview of the ranking challenges before us by Dartmouth's Margot Krasnoff, editor and architect of this superb volume, and is followed by lessons learned in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua. He goes on to say, this series of in-depth case studies, richly informed by the long and often difficult experience and linked together by Krasnoff's masterful connective tissue, answers a great and until now unmet need. For all those from students and trainees, whether in health professions or not, to senior clinicians and staff now turning towards global health who ask, what should I read before I go into this field? Building partnerships in Americas is the answer. It is sure to become the go-to volume for those deeply engaged in such work and also answers the questions of what academic medical centers have come to offer as partners in this struggle for global health equity. But the book will also be of interest to all concerned with what we might learn from addressing health disparities across national boundaries and within our own unequal societies. That is absolutely amazing. Let's give a warm welcome to Margo. Thank you. Uh, I'm a little. <laughs> Got to catch my balance after that wonderful introduction. Okay. Well, thank you all for coming this morning. And um, I do have a disclosure in that I'm the. Wait, where did the book go? Here it is. I'm the editor, and uh, the writer of several chapters of the book. I have three objectives. I'd like to describe a partnership model. I need to stand close to this. I, need to I want to describe a partnership model for global health outreach activities 
I'll be reviewing the ethical principles of Global Health Volunteer Service, and I'm going to be highlighting some of the work that Dartmouth colleagues, many of whom are in the room today, are doing in Honduras, Nicaragua, the Dominican Republic, and in Haiti. And as a clinician educator, I really like it when the Grand Round speaker starts their lecture by following the tradition of using a case. So I thought in terms of the lecture today, what I would do was tell the story of how I became involved in global health, and it certainly was not a linear path or something that I set out to do. I grew up in suburban New Jersey, and I was a biology major at Dartmouth College back in the early years of co-education. I then took a year off, and I worked in a pharmacology lab at the Harvard School of Public Health. I then decided to go to medical school, and I applied as part of the National Health Service Corps Scholarship Program. And I was really fortunate to win a complete scholarship for medical school. Geisel was a three-year medical school at the time. I was actually the last class of the three-year program. And that meant there was almost no time for vacation or for electives. But we got through in three years. And that was actually good because that meant I only had to pay back three years um, in terms of my scholarship. So I signed up for the National Health Service Corps during the Carter years. So I thought when I signed the dotted line that I was going to be going to a community health center in an urban area. But when I finished my residency, it was in the Reagan years. And Reagan totally gutted the program of the health centers. And so what it was then was you had to do a private practice option. But that was kind of a euphemism, because there really was no option. And what that meant was you had to find um, a community that did not have a regular physician, that was in a health manpower shortage area, and then work with that community to provide medical care. So um, I knew, since I knew I was going to be doing real primary care, I tailored my residency in terms of I did, added uh, pediatrics rotations. I volunteered at Planned Parenthood, so I'd get a lot of skills in women's health. And the actual story of how I linked up to Ludlow, Vermont, would take too long to include today. But it's actually a very interesting side story. But lo and behold, I finished my residency in 1985. And then I had what I call my second residency, which was I was a solo physician in a town. And I was 17 miles from the nearest hospital. And that was a real learning experience um, in terms of being flexible and being independent and learning how to um, call people up for telephone consultations. This was before the internet. Um, and um, as part of the agreement with the town, I took care of children. And as part of being in the core, you know, I had to have a sign up that was prominent in my waiting room that I would take care of all patients regardless of their ability to pay. So my own commitment to social justice was evident from the very first days of practicing medicine. And when you're a small town doc, people barter. They bring you bags of tomatoes. Um, as most of you, many of you know I'm a vegetarian, but they would bring me like big pieces of venison. Um, <laughs> but you know, you're very gracious, and if it's venison, it's venison, and it meant that people uh, were trying to do their part um, in terms of paying for their medical care. And then after my three years were up, my friend Chris Allen, who many of you know, wanted to return to Vermont, so it was really convenient. He took over my medical practice, and I moved here in 2000. Uh, in 1988, and that was my first stint on the faculty from 1988 to 1995, which, which Roshni alluded to. And during that time, I got really involved with domestic violence advocacy, writing protocols for the hospital here, for the state of New Hampshire. Um, I was involved with women's health, curricular development. I became uh, certified in geriatrics. And I started volunteering at the Good Neighbor Health Clinic when it opened in 1992. And I always wanted to learn Spanish, so I took every Spanish class that Lebanon College offered. And there were some actually really, really wonderful classes. Then in 1995, I had a personal opportunity to move to Buffalo, New York. And so this was really a great opportunity for me, because I had done all my training in northern New England to move to an inner city. And I looked at like seven different practices before I decided to work for the State University of New York at Buffalo at Millard Fillmore at Gates Circle, which was their inner city hospital. And I really wanted a practice where I could see people from all socioeconomic backgrounds. And Buffalo was really segregated. The medical practice was that either you worked in an inner city hospital or you did um, some type of private practice, and none of the private <coughs> practitioners saw Medicaid patients. 
So this was kind of a blended opportunity. And I liked the fact that since it was a bilingual practice, I could use my Spanish. So we had Puerto Rican uh, patients, primarily African-American patients, and our staff was bilingual. I was also involved, I think because my last name is Krasnoff, that they brought lots of patients who had just immigrated from the former Soviet Union. They all needed, and they would all think, oh, she speaks Russian, but I didn't. But um, yeah, I, I learned, actually I learned some uh, medical Russian in addition to my medical Spanish. But um, that was kind of an active part of my practice that I enjoyed. And I also had the opportunity to work with some excellent medical students and residents uh, from the State University of New York at Buffalo. But then after six years, uh, for uh, personal reasons, it was time to return to the Upper Valley. And I remember calling Fran Brokaw, who was the section chief of general internal medicine at the time, and I said, hey, Fran, is it possible that I could have my old job back? And she said, absolutely. And my patients, my former patients, were just overjoyed. I mean, the word kind of got out. And before I knew it, I had like a full practice all over again. And for me, one thing that's been really nice is that I've actually had continuity with, of care with some patients that I've taken care of back in 1985. Some of that Ludlow crowd has followed me, and now I actually have multiple generations, two or three generations that I've followed. So that continuity is one of the real joys of being a primary care physician. All right, so even though I had one day dreamed of maybe I'd do some global health work, I had no idea like what I would do or how I would do it. And my idea of global health work was that it was something that surgeons did. Like they either went off and did cataract operations or they, you know, people would repair cleft lips. I had no idea like what would a general internist do. So one day, I, I'm a random reader of the Valley News. I'm not a daily reader. But one day there was an article in all places of the Valley News saying global health volunteer open house at the Monshire Museum. And there was this article about an organization that was based in Norwich, Vermont, called ACTS, Americans Caring, Teaching, and Show Americans Caring, Teaching, and Sharing. And I read about the group. It was a secular group, and it linked healthcare to education, community development, and it was located in rural Honduras. So I was pretty intrigued reading about this in the Valley News, and I cited to go to the open house and check it out. And I really like the fact that this group had a long-term relationship with this village of El Rosario, and they'd been going back for years. And not only that, the group was led by two primary care physicians, Dean Siebert and Peter Mason. So I went to the open house, and I was really impressed with them and the work that they were doing. And so I decided I'd just sign up. I'd give it a go. And I was not someone who was a world traveler. In fact, I'd been overseas just three times in my life, and once was in seventh grade when I went, <laughs> yeah, when I went to Jamaica. I mean, I had not been overseas, yeah. So I had not traveled much, and the whole idea of like going with a group and under the leadership of Dr. Siebert, that just sounded like kind of safe and in my comfort zone, so I signed up. And the uh, team from Axe, we got together, we had meetings ahead of time, which was good, and I bought the Lonely Planet Guide to Honduras <laughs> because I wanted to learn about the country ahead of time. But the Lonely Planet in absolutely no way prepared me for what I would actually <laughs> encounter. Okay, so welcome to El Rosario, Honduras in 2004. The town that we drove to was in the mountains, it was four hours from where we got off the plane in San Pedro Sula. 400 people lived in the town, and they were there without telephones, electricity, um, no mail service, no public transportation, and, and they survived on subsistence agriculture. They had these little plots where they were growing beans and corn. And right out the window from our bunkhouse, there, this is what happened twice a day. These animals would walk up and down the the little road, and these were the beasts of burden that the people used to plow the fields. And most of the people didn't even own their land. They would rent these little plots from a landowner. So I was really shocked. And Dean uh, very cleverly hooked me the very first day. Because what he did was we had a little clinic that we, were, that we started seeing patients at. But he said, Margo, I 
want you to go out and make some house calls and see those senior patients in their homes, the people that are a little too weak to come out to the, to the health center. So I went with the nurse kind of up in the local village and visited people in their homes. And within that first day, I realized, wow, this is really something that is important to do. And, um, and of course, experiencing poverty firsthand is in no way the same as reading about it in a book. So the next year, I wanted to improve my Spanish. I really felt that I had, I needed to take, kick it up to the next level. So I decided to do a language study program in Quetzaltenango, which is up in the northern highlands of the western highlands of Guatemala. And it's known as Shela. That's the abbreviation. Some people do language study in Antigua, but Antigua is kind of, kind of more developed place and I met with some medical students who actually said they had gone to Quetzaltenango, and they suggested I go there. <clears throat> and it was a phenomenal experience. Uh, first of all, I lived with a family where no one spoke English. So right there, improved my communication skills. All morning, I had like a private tutor, and I brought some medical Spanish books with me just to make sure that we focused it. I didn't want to spend all the time talking about like going to the theater. I mean, I really wanted my Spanish to be focused on medical Spanish. And you know, I'd gone to Spanish one, two, five, levels one to five, 11 in college. So I kind of had my own goals for what I wanted to achieve with really focused language study. And in the afternoon, I would go, I took a bus out to this health center where um, there were uh, two lay, actually they were somewhat trained midwives and uh, a physician who was on her social service year and we saw patients all afternoon together. So it was a really good opportunity for me to learn about how um, they approached the problems that they faced. And to this point, I certainly observed the social gradient of health, no matter where I had practiced, insofar as the poorer the person, the worse their health. I saw this in rural New England, I saw it in inner city Buffalo, and in the communities of Latin America, where I spent some time, in Nicaragua, Honduras, Belize, Mexico, and in Guatemala. And as a result of these experiences, I started to develop a more global state of mind. And a picture here, um, oh, I got the, yep, and that's Dean Siebert. He's not here today because he's actually in El Rosario. And he just epitomizes diplomacy. He's a person who has had a vision of what is a better world, and he has worked hard to achieve it. The um, improvements in health, and in education in the area of El Rosario have just been amazing. And I'll, I'll talk more about those later on. And um, so anyway, he's, he's my hero. And I've talked to him a few times in the last month as I was preparing for this talk. And that was just, it really warms my heart to speak with him. And this, he, neither he nor I could remember um, the name of this woman, but she was definitely the oldest patient that we saw um, when we were there. And then in 2007, I was invited to work as a faculty member with the Dartmouth CCESP program, which I'll talk about later on as well. So I did that for three years. And then in 2010, I got a phone call out of the blue from Phyllis Deutsch, who's the editor-in-chief of the University Press of New England. And she had gotten my name uh, from the Tucker Foundation. So she had asked me if I would have any interest. Actually, she invited me to be the editor of a book. And uh, the book was going to be called um, Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean, A Practical Guide for Global Health Workers. And she came up with this idea because Lisa Adams and Laurel Spielberg had been working on a similar book on Africa. And um, so she had, so Phyllis, the editor-in-chief, had this idea of making it into a series. So she asked me if I would be interested in doing a book on the Latin American region. So my initial reaction was, absolutely no way. I mean, I've got a full-time job here as a clinician educator. I have two ill parents in their 80s. And at the time, I was actually moving my parents from Florida to Lebanon because I'd been going back and forth to Florida, and it just wasn't working. So I have a lot on my plate. And so, of course, my initial reaction was, like, no way. But then I started thinking about it. And I thought about how... Over the next few years, I anticipated that my wings would be clipped, that with the two ill parents, I wasn't going to be going off to, you know, remote areas of Nicaragua or Guatemala, that, you know, I, I was going to need to stay home. I have work to do in terms of uh, taking care of my parents. So I thought about it. Okay, this would be an opportunity 
to do global health service at home on my computer. Okay, so, and that's the reason that I said yes. And I actually called Brian Lacey, because I know he'd written a book, and I said, Brian, like, when did you find the time in your schedule to write a book? And he said, 4 a.m. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't realize at the time that he was absolutely right, that the time that I got most of this work done was at 4 a.m. Um, but in any case, um, I said yes, and of course I had no idea what I was getting into, and I could not have done it without Lisa Adams. I don't, I can't tell if Lisa, hey Lisa, I could not have done it without Lisa Adams. Lisa was phenomenal, because I consulted her at every stage of the way. And she was always so gracious, and so she really was my mentor. And I thank her deeply from my heart. Um, so what I want to do next is talk about the partnership model. And I thought I'd start by reading the first paragraph of the book. Okay, take a sip of water first. So when the media and social networking bring poverty, disease, and natural disasters into our living rooms, there's an instinctive human reaction to try to help. This book is a response to the question, how can I, with the skills that I possess, best contribute to addressing this widespread suffering in a shared way? Understanding the cultural context of the communities being served is essential for the long-term success of any healthcare program. The direction must come from the culture itself. A collaborative approach is crucial for effective healthcare delivery. And that makes sense in, in this country as well. But this idea of a collaborative approach, that's really what the partnership model is all about. And next I have a, an answer to this question of how can I help from Dr. Agnes Benaguajo, uh, who's the Rwanda Minister of Health, saying, don't come for charity, come for partnership. And when Lisa and her colleagues um, who've gone to Rwanda give grand rounds in two weeks, they're going to be talking a lot more about um, what an amazing figure um, Dr. Binaguajo is. But I really like um, the, this comment she made in The Guardian in May, or I would have used it um, in the book, uh, which is don't come for charity, come for partnership. So there are uh, three legs of the partnership model. We need to help meet the immediate needs of the people, collaborate with local partners to build infrastructure in conjunction with the healthcare delivery systems that are already in place, and we need to seek to transfer skills that locals ask for and need. And the goal ultimately is to have people become more self-sufficient and less reliant on foreign aid. There are several strategies for effective collaboration. Probably the most important is not to impose models or ideas where they are not appropriate. Don't try to reinvent the wheel it's important to recognize that there are already competent organizations and people on the ground in each country, and they are already leveraging the resources that are available. And of course, it's important to learn about culture and language prior to your trip. Now, the book, Building Partnerships in the Americas, is filled with examples of how um, healthcare workers have formed these partnerships. And I want to just briefly discuss the photo, which I just absolutely love. And, it, and how it came to be selected for the book cover. This family lives in a small village in the mountains of Chiapas in Mexico, where Partners in Health has a project. And the photographer is from an Italian NGO called Shoot for Change. And what this group does is they go and actually, they lived with this family, the photographer did for a week prior to taking any photographs. So that people became very comfortable <laughs> around the photographer and Shoot for Change does not use any artificial light. And um, so they, the Partners in Health, uh, my contact with them, uh, sent me probably uh, about 30 photographs. And they were all really, really amazing photographs. Um, and it was hard to pick a final one. But I really liked this one because it was a family and it had an open door. And we um, asked their permission. Uh, if they would let us use this uh, photo for the cover of the book. And they said yes, on the condition that they got a copy. And so it was really a wonderful day this summer when Dan Palazuelos went back to visit the family, brought them a copy of the book. They were just incredulous to see it. And it's now up on their mantle. And they're really, really proud about it. <laughs> 
So um, you don't have a multi-author book on um, seven countries without lots of authors. And I have to admit that working with the 16 authors was one of the most um, rewarding aspects of this whole project for me, uh, developing relationships with them. And we had a book launch in Boston because half of the authors of the book um, are from the Boston area. And I had to pick a day really far in advance to get all these people who go and do global health work in one place. But we found a date, and it was a really magical night. We had about 80 people who came, family, friends. Um, announcements were put out um, through several of the NGOs that uh, were related to the book. And I want to highlight some of the people. Um, right in the center here is Ben Yastrzemski. And I met Ben when he was a medical student, uh, sorry, when he was a Dartmouth undergraduate. And we'd gone to Nicaragua together a few times. And now he's in his fourth year at Harvard Med School. And he um, and Jim Saunders from the ENT department and I, the three of us co-wrote um, the first chapter in the book on Nicaragua. So it was great to have Ben there and he brought some of his um, uh, fellow students uh, from the medical school. And on the left here is Peter Roloff and he uh, founded an NGO in Guatemala called Maya Health Alliance. It also has uh, a Kichi Mayan name. And on his, over here is Dan Palazuelos and when each of these guys are not in Central America, they work as hospitalists at the Brigham. And these two authors in particular were really just wonderful colleagues to me in terms of being sounding boards. And we did a lot of emailing back and forth. And on the right here, we have Kim Wilson and Karen Sadler, and they're both pediatricians at Children's. To my left, Landy Smith um, had worked at Montefiore for years in their social medicine department. He was the founder of an organization called Doctors for Global Health. And he and Denise Zuelan, to my right, um, both were the co-authors of the El Salvador chapter. So in terms of the countries that we covered, um, I picked Honduras, Nicaragua, and Haiti because those are the three poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. And in all these countries, there are significant gaps in meeting the Millennium Development Goals. And the premise of the book is that when you are a volunteer, whether you're a high school student or a college student or a health professional, and when you go to work in a foreign country, you really need to try to understand the cultural context of the people and also about the health system that you're going to encounter. And the material that you need, the tools, are quite different than what you're going to find in a tourist guide. The challenge of me for writing the introduction was trying to pull the themes together from the various chapters, and that was the connective tissue. And I was really delighted when Paul Farmer mentioned that and kind of noted it, because um, that was something that I had to do kind of as the editor of the whole volume and try to make these disparate chapters, um, bring them together so we could flow. And also our intention was that if these countries border each other and people move back and forth. So if you're gonna spend time in Guatemala, it's really helpful to learn more about Mexico and the history of the countries. And I also wanted to mention here that um, the book would not have taken its final form if not for the three academic reviewers. Um, there was a cultural anthropologist, an academic physician, and also a health activist. And each person saw different areas for improvement. And that was up for me as the editor to incorporate those suggestions in. And as you can see, the authors are from a wide variety of organizations, from Partners in Health down to um, some faith-based organizations and as well from a variety of backgrounds. In addition to physicians, we had sociologists, anthropologists. <clears throat> Next, I'm gonna talk about ethical principles of global health service. And here, it's not just what you do, it's how you do it. And why do ethics matter? Um, Tim Leahy's in the audience, and he wrote a really important paper in academic medicine last year with a proposed medical school curriculum to help students recognize the ethical issues of global health outreach work. And I like the diagram because ethics are really at the center. The bottom tier, the foundation, is about the justifications for global health outreach work. The second tier is looking at the sources of health disparities. And then ultimately, our goal is to try to heal global health disparities. That's what it's all about. So this saying, a woman has one foot in the grave, um, was taken from the book and it's about the situation of women's health um, in Latin America in which there's very significant um, health disparities and the maternal uh, death rate is the largest health disparity in the world. So 
it's just important to recognize that um, 250,000 women die each year in childbirth, and probably at least half of those deaths are preventable. And PPH stands for postpartum hemorrhage. And in the countries I've worked at in Latin America, there have been maternity wards without running water, without toilets, without dependable electricity. And many women still deliver at home, um, sometimes with a lay midwife and sometimes with no midwife at all, just a family member. And about only 40% of the births in the um, region of Nicaragua, the Caribbean coast region, are actually uh, occur in a health facility. And I, I forgot to mention on the prior slide that um, the, one of the, the couples who, uh, that there are two chapters on Nicaragua. The first one was written by um, Ben and, and Jim and I about the history and kind of the western part of the country. But the second chapter is written about the Caribbean coast region and the Mosquito Indians and the indigenous groups. And that chapter was co-written by a dentist, Belinda Forbes, and her husband, uh, Gerardo Gutierrez, who's a Nicaraguan internist who does a, has done a lot of ethnographic work with this Mosquito tribe um, and their indigenous customs, which, which he writes about in the book. So in terms of the social determinants of health, kind of the second tier of Tim's model, this is a really important, um, really important aspect. And what are some of these upstream factors? The traditional things we think about are lack of clean water, lack of sanitation, food insecurity leading to malnutrition, lack of access to basic health services. But lately, there's been a growing epidemic of non-communicable diseases in Latin America. And here we have obesity. And unfortunately, um, for a lot of poor people, there's cheaper access to Coca-Cola than there is to clean water, uh, to drink, for drinking water. So there's kind of been an epidemic of cheap junk food and um, soft drinks, which have been leading to a burgeoning uh, increase in obesity. So they're kind of, unfortunately, these countries are having to face two battles. Still, they have infectious diseases as well as um, non-communicable diseases. And in resource-poor communities, women, children, and the indigenous fare worst of all. And this is a photo that Alice Werbel sent me from <coughs> Haiti, where these children are washing their hands. They don't have clean water at home, but they were at a hand-washing station in the midst of the devastating cholera epidemic. So social inequalities of health are differences in health that are not only unnecessary and avoidable, but they're also unfair and unjust. And the causes are multiple and interrelated. Tim also wrote a paper about social justice and the social justice curriculum in medical schools. And social justice is really a belief that, about the dignity of the human person, that it's the foundation uh, for a moral society. Uh, social justice addresses the fact that we need to give priority to the poor and the underserved, and that we should try to have equal provision of health care despite social obstacles. So that kind of goes back to the National Health Service Corps, trying to take care of all people regardless of their ability to pay. <clears throat> Certainly, um, the book Building Partnerships in the America is one of the fundamental beliefs is that health is a human right, and that all people should be protected from the costs of ill health, and that all governments do have an obligation to try to ensure that people have access to a basic, affordable package of health services. When we talk about ethical principles, um, Tim outlines these in his um, article. And they, these are basically, these were developed kind of in a Western framework, respect for individual autonomy, beneficence, the act of doing good, non-maleficence, do no harm, justice, and the responsible use of resources. The use of resources becomes a key obstacle each time we take teams of students into Nicaragua and we have to wrestle with the fact that the resources are so limited and we have to try to address how can we deal with uh, resources and resource allocation. In terms of autonomy, uh, we talk about lack of interference in the decision-making process and who makes decisions. In our society, it's always the individual. In other cultures, it might be the family, the community. We have to recognize and respect that there are divergent diagnostic and treatment paradigms. A key issue is that we have to ensure that there's adequate supervision of learners whenever we have learners that are with us. And it's really on a par with the supervision that they would receive in a training program here in the United States. And in any opportunity for clinical research, it's paramount to avoid coercion. There, of course, there are many cultural nuances. And ethics are influenced by local standards and beliefs. We need to avoid assumptions about the people we're there to treat. 
And we need to ask questions to try to learn what values do people have that are different from our own. In terms of do no harm, we need to seek to anticipate and prevent any unintended negative consequences. We want to conduct ourselves in such a way that we'll be welcomed back as friends. It's really important to not make promises that you don't intend to keep. And people need to try to minimize their burden on others, um, either when they're in clinic or with their hosts. And there are many potential pitfalls to global health work. One is starting patients on therapies or creating expectations that can't be sustained once the team leaves. It's really important to not provide culturally insensitive care. And of course, we don't want to create additional dependency. Um, one of the surgeons wrote a really nice paper about seven sins to avoid. And number one, leaving a mess behind so that surgeons don't go in and uh, fail to ensure there's going to be follow-up for the surgeries that they do. Failing to match technology to local needs and abilities. Failures of NGOs to cooperate with each other, not having a follow-up plan, et cetera. <clears throat> what are some of the lessons learned? For myself, I've learned that I have as much to receive and learn as I've had to give. I always need to talk less and listen more. Um, it's always important to try to understand how the community is organized. It's always very fascinating. It's important to recognize that the community is organized. Usually it's the women who are really organizers and to learn about them and their networks. And very importantly, that locals will not criticize your idea to your face. But you have to find out more about what they think are the uh, problems with your idea. <coughs> So um, about a month ago, I gave a lecture uh, one evening to the Dartmouth students that are going to be, they're actually left for Nicaragua this week with Dr. Jack Turco. And I spoke to them for about an hour about ethical issues. I had case studies. We had lots of discussion back and forth. So when I finished, um, the student leader, Rebecca, said to me, um, Dr. Krasnoff, would you like to have a seat? Because we're going to spend the next half hour talking about your lecture and reflecting upon it. So I said, oh, of course, you know, and I, uh, I had a seat. And so she then asked her, her classmates, so what was the most meaningful thing that Professor Krasnoff said to you in her lecture? <laughs> okay, so I kind of held my breath for a moment. And one student raised his hand and he said, I was really touched when she said, let the world change you. And every student nodded their head at that moment. And Part of my research for doing the book was learning about organizations that get involved with placing students, like for high school students and college students. So there's this incredible organization called Child and Family Health International, and they have this on their website. And this was not something that I'd made a really big point about in the lecture, but I had mentioned that this was a quote that had resonated with me when I had read it. But what Rebecca, the student leader, did next was, I think, was really pretty brilliant, because she wrote on the board, how do we let the world change us? And then she then guided her classmates into a discussion about this. And they were all really engaged in this question. And what they were getting at was their personal ethics of global health service. And I wished I had taped it, but three of their suggestions stood out. The first one was well, things that they planned to do was to take some time each day to reflect upon what they were doing. So personal reflection. Number two was think twice before you complain. I thought, that's a really good take-home message. Think twice before you complain. OK. And three, bring the, bring the experience back home to share it with other people who have not had the opportunity to go. So I thought that was really valuable. And lastly, I want to talk about the Dartmouth partnerships in the Americas. This is the research part of my talk. It was totally a convenience sample, all right? And basically, it was my own contacts, and then it became contacts of contacts, because I would talk to one person, and they would say, oh, do you know about so-and-so? OK, the methodology was totally qualitative research, and it was done over a cup of coffee or tea. <laughs> all right, so I recognized that it was not, uh, this is not inclusive, and I apologize, because there may be people that I obviously don't know about. And I do know that Mary Turco is in the audience and that she's actually planning to send out a very official study, which, which she does on a regular basis. So she can actually get a much more comprehensive listing. But this is kind of my convenient sample. And before I get into the specifics, I need to just acknowledge the incredible contributions of what, someone who I will call an uber global health volunteer. And that is Rosalind Stevens from the ophthalmology department. 
And she has worked as a volunteer with Orbis International, and they work to prevent blindness worldwide. And she's been doing this tw for 20 years, and she actually has a DC-10 jet. There are several of them, and they have operating rooms, and they go to, on these missions throughout the world, rendering a whole variety of eye care. So Rosalind is really an amazing person. And I want to talk about the power of a helping hand, because this quote is from a Nicaraguan physician that our friends from the United States provide one hand to help, and we provide the other. And two hands working together can do a lot more than either can do alone. <coughs> what the AXE group has done in, in Honduras is nothing short of phenomenal. They've worked on all of the social determinants of health. And their basic health indicators have significantly improved. They work on sanitation, economic development, education, environmental development. And not only that, they collaborate with other groups. They've had a long collaboration with Engineers Without Borders to work on water systems. This very week, there are veterinarians there working with Dean, dental professionals. And their latest, oh, the picture on the upper left is um, of Peter Mason, who's actually in Puerto Rico uh, today, or he'd be here. Um, but I want to mention a really exciting collaboration with the Cancer Center. And basically, um, cervical cancer is a huge problem throughout uh, Latin America. It's the most serious and deadly cancer in Honduras. And less than 10% of Honduran women are screened. And as we all know, cervical cancer is entirely preventable. But when it's picked up in a situation like um, Honduras, it's basically beyond the stage of any treatment. So in partnership with a Honduran organization called La Liga Contra el Cancer, um, the, and which is the Honduran Cancer Center, the Norse Cotton Cancer Center, they're working together <clears throat> to develop a full cervical cancer screening program. And they actually had their first screenings in El Rosario on October 26th and 27th. So pictured here is a team of Honduran medical students and these uh, physicians from the La Liga, as well as um, Paul Manganello's in the background there. Uh, Mary Chamberlain uh, went as well on the team. And in the uh, bottom left here, we have, this is Linda Kennedy, and she is the uh, project leader, and she's, um, looks like she's adjusting the collar of Derek Stenquist, who's someone who um, went to uh, Nicaragua with me on one of the CCESP trips, and now he's also a Harvard Med student. So the team thought that maybe 200 people would show up for this screening, and they were just amazed that 500 women showed up. And they were from 16 villages. So this is like the communities are organized. I mean, even though there's no... Um, mail service, the, the word got out that they were doing this screening, 500 women showed up, and they all, in, in their compensation for coming was they got a hot meal, but they also got a pap smear, an HPV test, um, they used the, the lemon model, people may have seen in the hallway here, they had translated the limon model for breast self-exam, so there was education about that, they got a clinical breast exam by Mary Chamberlain, who found some cases of um, early and very advanced breast cancer. And, um, and they got a survey about their health. So women who had abnormal findings were immediately referred for treatment. And actually, you know, now it's six weeks later, all have gotten into treatment. And um, extensive data was collected. It's being analyzed, learning about HPV, learning how we could address a, a good vaccination strategy. And Alba Rosa, one of the local leaders, said, no one has ever done anything like this uh, for women in our area before. So that's going to be part of an ongoing commitment of the North Cotton Cancer Center. The CCESP program, uh, we go to a remote um, part of Nicaragua. It stands for Cross-Cultural Education and Service. And we work in conjunction with the Ministry of Health. The photo, I, I forgot the name of this medical student, but she had just finished sewing up a machete wound. And we always see lots of machete wounds. And then on the bottom left, Jack is in Nicaragua. He's hitting another home run. He's, <laughs> yeah, he's just an amazing colleague, and I've always enjoyed uh, working with him. And we work in conjunction with uh, Bridges to Community, which is a really solid NGO. And they help to like work in, with the lay midwives ahead of time so that we bring down educational materials that are relevant to what they ask for. Um, for those of you who don't know him, uh, Jim Saunders here is an amazing ENT physician here uh, at DHMC, and he has been going
going to uh, Nicaragua since 1998 with an organization that he co-founded called the Mayflower Medical Outreach. And you know they've brought down containers of supplies. He's trained surgeons. He's built a health center. I mean, the list of the accomplishments that they have is just uh, truly extraordinary. And in our book, um, Dr. Karen Mojica, a Nicaraguan uh, ENT doctor, she describes what it was like for her as a resident to work with Jim and do the first cochlear implant in Nicaragua and how that just was a life-changing experience for the child. And also, they recognize that not all people can qualify for a cochlear implant, so they also have developed a school for the deaf. They teach Nicaraguan sign language. They do vocational training. So he does really multi, a multi-modality approach. Um, in the Dominican Republic, um, Rita Severinghouse, who many of you know, has just been an outstanding um, advocate. Uh, she actually, over the course of many years, has built a health center um, in 2001, 2011, which now functions under the Ministry of Health. And she's in the Dominican Republic right now. And she did this work in association with many volunteers and through the um, auspices and the support of the Norwich Congregational Church, UCC. In terms of Haiti, Brian is in the audience today. And I really want to shine a spotlight on his amazing contributions to both nephrology and medical education. As many of you know, immediately after the 2010 earthquake, he anticipated the devastating crush injuries, and he volunteered to bring a dialysis equipment, uh, which he did, and helped this woman, um, the patient, you can kind of barely see her under the drape, but she had bilateral crush injuries to her legs. And then he told me the story about how he was recruited to help out with the, the child that he's holding who was seizing, and he had um, Valium with him, and he was he worked with her over the next few days to um, help her uh, regain her health. And then in the bottom left panel, he's there talking very thoughtfully uh, with some Haitian physicians, and he helped work with them to see patients and to work with their clinical reasoning skills. And then um, since he's been back, he's helped to spearhead an amazing program called the Haiti Medical Education Project. And this is a telemedicine conference that goes on um, every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. And Brian has a studio right in his office. And these lectures are delivered in French. And thus far, his volunteers have come from McGill, uh, Dartmouth, as well as from Montefiore. And over 100 talks have been given. It's really evolved from being just a lecture to being a real interactive program. And he needs volunteers. In fact, he needs you to give talks. After he gave me the pitch, I realized I can give a talk. So I'm going to give a talk on pain management. And um, it's really easy. You can do some global health volunteer work without even leaving the building. So yes. Uh, many, many people have been involved with Haiti. Um, Rob Gougelet was involved with the incident command, ongoing work. Teams have gone after the earthquake. Alice Werbel, Peter Wright, and Elizabeth Talbot from Infectious Disease have ongoing projects in Haiti. Don Caruso from Keene, a family medicine physician, has been going here for the last five years, a very active group in the Keene area. John Nutting, Michael Sparks from orthopedics, Bob Harris from radiology, Tom Colaccio, general surgery. So lots of people have been going to Haiti. So let's hope for the future. Let's work towards a future in which where a patient lives, doesn't determine if they live. And lastly, I want to inspire us all to try to think globally and act locally. This was the um, on the website for the American Public Health Association 2013 meeting. Think globally, act locally. There are many opportunities for us to fight the manifestations of poverty and need. One thing we could do is volunteer at the Good Neighbor Health Clinic in White River Junction. I know that there are Several of you in this room have been, who have been doing this. It's a wonderful opportunity. It's a minimal commitment. You can do it for like one night a month for a few hours, but it really does make a difference. Um, maybe we could participate in the Haiti Med Medical Education Project and give a lecture. And lastly, we can think about Rebecca's question, which is, how do we let the world change us? I want to offer thanks. There's a long list of people here, um, primarily to Lisa and John Butterly and um, the staff of the University Press of New England, 
uh, Jack and Mary Turco, Alice Werbel and Joanne Hayes, my colleagues who have we've gone to Nicaragua together. Eric Mannheimer and Charlene Gates are my friends who actually read the book from cover to cover when it was in manuscript form and gave me lots of helpful suggestions. And of course, my colleagues in the general internal medicine section who would cover me during my absences. And just to summarize, I described a partnership model for global health outreach. I reviewed some of the ethical principles and highlighted the work that colleagues are doing. So thank you, and I've got some time for questions. about doing global health. I think that it's incumbent on people who want to do it to do it in a thoughtful way and to do it in a partnership. That's why I actually um, wrote that title of the book because the idea, it's really it's not about you, it's about the people that you're there to serve. That I think if you have that mindset and you want to link up with an organization that's doing ongoing work, that it's possible to have even short-term work have long-lasting benefits. And for that, I would give an example of Dean Siebert, who's been going back, Peter Mason, you know, to these communities over time. So I think that, that that's kind of a different perspective of just going as a tourist just to kind of see poverty. I mean, that could feel a little invasive and inappropriate. But I think that there are ways to do it thoughtfully where, where you can make a difference. And for us, we have the great, um, we have skills that we can help teach if they're the skills that local people ask for and need. So I think that it can certainly be done in a very thoughtful, thoughtful manner. Yes, Lisa. Thank you, Margaret. That was really a fantastic overview and look at how to do global health work effectively. I just had a couple comments and then question. Um, one comment is that I, I appreciated your sharing your personal trajectory into global health with us. Mm -hmm. um, you really launched your <coughs> global health at a time when global health didn't exist as a field or an academic discipline, um, and at, at a time where we didn't really know how to get involved in this work. And yet you did something very important, which is that you prepared yourself. Yes. You prepared yourself well and thoroughly. And now we know that there are so many, um, for our students now who are interested in global health, so many programs and training courses and um, you know, career paths that exist for them. But you had to do that at a time when those didn't exist, but you did what you needed to do. You essentially created your own um, uh, uh, trajectory into global health. And um, you took courses, you developed language proficiency, you tried to learn about the culture, you found good mentors through the ACTS program to help you. And I just think that that's really important um, and worth mentioning. And my other comment is that I don't know if I shared with you, but I think your title to your book is so much better than ours. And I really wish Phyllis had called you first so that then our book would be called Building Partnerships in Africa instead. Um, and then my question actually is around the, the comment about how does how do we let the world change us? Mm -hmm. And if you have reflected on how your experiences in global health have um, affected you not just personally, but perhaps in your practice at, at, um, here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Wow. Um, I'm going to take, I'm going to talk first about how we changed the book title, because that's kind of an interesting story. And um, I'll talk about how I mean, I could talk for hours, actually, about how these experiences change me. 
Um, why did we change the title of the book? Because actually the working title, the authors were, it came up at our book launch because like, they actually asked me, how did you come up with the new title for the book? Because they thought it was this like working title that Phyllis had given us. And I said, well, first of all, the reviewers thought that the book didn't really match the title. And so I, one day I just put a blank piece of paper in front of me and I got up early in the morning and I said, okay, what's the book really about? I really need to kind of make the title capture what it's about. And it's about building partnerships. So that just like was a clear vision to me. And then like once I got that, I was just like, I was on it from that moment forward. And the authors all really agreed that that's what they felt in their hearts it was about. So there we are. Um, it's, it's always very jarring to come back from a global health experience to walk into this building and see the patients here and, and kind of hear the different level of um, what's important to people and what um, just, to, just to bridge the two worlds. It, 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 it takes me a while to kind of settle back in. And I don't ever settle in quite the same as I was before I left. So I think just recognition of how much privilege we have, how many resources we have, um, and that each person has their own suffering and it's different. Um, and it's my job as a physician to be open. I think probably the most important lesson is just being open, listening to the suffering, having empathy, and just kind of taking it from there. Yeah, but thank you for those questions. Yes. Margot, there are two, two points that, uh, about your work and the work of others, Dean Siebert and the rest of it, really impressed me over your efforts uh, have been sustained. Mm -hmm. And sustainability is absolutely key if you're going to make real progress uh, globally. Absolutely. I and agree. I say this as somebody who's seen a lot of global health over the world, particularly in the context of crisis relief and so forth. And there are so many efforts in global health efforts uh, particularly funded by USAID and mm -hmm. large organizations that are in and out. And when the money dries up, they collapse. Mm -hmm. And if you try to go through the literature of USAID projects mm -hmm. and find efforts that have been sustainable, mm -hmm. they're almost none that are well documented. Mm -hmm. uh, and your efforts are, and Dean's efforts, are so impressive uh, because of the persistence and the sustainability. The second thing I think that is very rewarding for uh, uh, health providers and physicians especially mm -hmm. is to do hands-on medicine mm -hmm. and work from the bottom up mm -hmm. in a sustainable way. That's what makes the long-term impact. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, many of us have been involved in other contexts and working with ministries of health and so forth. And those are often terribly frustrating experiences mm -hmm. and very difficult to affect change mm -hmm. at the higher echelons. Mm -hmm. So I think two things, sustainability and workability are very appealing in the work you've done. And uh, I think those who are looking for opportunities should keep that in mind. Yeah, I echo that. I agree. Thank you very much, Jim. Yes. That was really excellent, Margot. I just wanted to point out another um, facet of the argument. There's a, a medical student run organization, Physicians for Social Responsibility, where um, you can volunteer as a mentor for uh, medical students who want to uh, do volunteer work around the world. And uh, we were at a dinner, Lisa and I were at a dinner, and a couple of other people in the audience last night. Um, and they, give, uh, they need the kind of oversight and advice that we can give them in these kind of pursuits. And there's a lot of them that are interested in this. Excellent. And Margo, thank you so much for a wonderful presentation. I wanted to echo something that Margo mentioned, which is that we are going to be doing um, another review survey to find out what are all the projects that people are doing. Um, Jim Strickler and John Butterly and I and others have done this survey about every five years. So many more projects are underway now with so many additional colleagues involved. We'd really like to see what is the inventory. We 
like to draw people's attention to that as a way of giving others an opportunity to join in with their colleagues to do other projects. So we're trying to do that later this month. If not, then it'll be early um, in the new year. But please participate if you are doing any kind of a project, no matter what it is, no matter whether you filled out the survey before, we'd really like to update it and know who's doing what, where. Thank you. Thank you.